You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast, reminding you, first and foremost, to go to wealthformula.com and pick up all sorts of resources, including my best-selling book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which you can buy on Amazon or get for free at by simply downloading it, the PDF version, on my website, wealthformula.com. You can also get a copy by simply uh, texting me, 44222, and type Wealth Formula. One word. Again, that's 44222, type Wealth Formula. Now, as for today's topic, now what do you believe in? Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Are you pro-choice, pro-life? How about guns? Should guns be outlawed in the United States? Or is this a First Amendment thing that, you know, get your hands off my gun situation? Do you ever look at the other side and wonder if they are absolutely nuts? I mean, how could they believe what they believe and stand for what they stand? Do you find yourself saying that or thinking that? Do you remember when there were only facts, not alternative facts, not situations where you didn't know which facts were actually true? Do you remember a world without a 24-hour news cycle that argued past each other all day and all night using professional pundits? I don't even think professional pundits existed 20 years ago. Intelligent discussions, you know, those debates like those from my childhood, you know, between intellectual giants like William F. Buckley Jr. and Gore Vidal, you know, guys who completely disagreed with each other. They were amazing debates, right? But they just don't make for good TV anymore. No one seems to care. It's just not reality TV-ishness, right? I mean, it's just not exciting. There's too many, too many, too much thinking, not enough emotion. You know, the problem is that we have a lot of serious stuff going on these days. You know, we got crazy weather. We got mass shootings. We got a short, fat North Korean dictator armed with nuclear weapons and a president who tweets our foreign policy to the world. Now, if you are a person who likes a good old-fashioned debate based on real ideas, these days you're pretty much out of luck. In fact, if you think deeply about your own opinions, tell yourself the truth. All right, How often are they the product of the opinions around you? You know, what other people around you say, you know, the community you live in, and how much of it is what you've carefully thought out for yourself. Believe me, I'm as guilty as anyone else. I mean, I'm as, I'm, I'm often dogmatic about issues, you know. Um, and then, you know, when I think about it, I may not have truly considered the opposing view and the merits of it. You know, one of the more pressing issues of our day right now is the use of fossil fuels. Now, I live in California, and, uh, you know, I've lived here since August, so I, uh, and, you know, that's about, what, three months now, three, four months? So I can consider myself a Californian now, and um, like most Californians, I'm one of those guys who really does care about the environment. And my knee-jerk response is to say yes to anything that limits fossil fuel emissions, all right? I mean, you know. Um, I'm thinking, you know, I, I keep looking at that Tesla and thinking maybe I should buy one. I just, I just can't get myself to spend it. You know, I mean, I'm like, I'd be better off buying Bitcoin. You know, <laughs> that's where I'm at right now. I'm just too greedy. I'm too greedy. 
But anyway, maybe there's another way to look at the issue, right? That issue of fossil fuels, even though I have my preconceived uh, notions, my ideas, maybe in fact there is a moral case for fossil fuels. You know, my guest uh, this week on Wealth Formula Podcast actually wrote a book making that case, exactly that case. It's Alex Epstein, and he is the New York Times bestselling author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Now, whatever biases you have while you're going into this show, do yourself a favor just, you know, to make this as useful as possible. Keep an open mind. Alex is a philosopher by training, and he's not only going to give you an argument, but he is also going to show you how he constructs it. So make sure uh, to listen closely. And, you know, regardless of whether or not you agree with them, I mean, listen to, uh, you know, to a very thought out argument. When we come back, Alex Epstein. There is no excuse for lazy money or lazy retirement money. After all, it grows tax-free. With Impact Housing, you can invest with a team that has a strong track record of making investors money through value-add strategies of neglected apartment buildings nationwide. The Real Estate Crowdfunding Review just named Impact Housing to their top 14 real estate investing sites for non-accredited investors and gave industry honors to it for most experienced sponsor and most socially conscious. Put your retirement money to work with an investment in Impact Housing. Head over to ImpactHousing.com. Again, that's ImpactHousing.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Alex Epstein. Alex is a philosopher uh, who applies big-picture humanistic thinking to industrial and environmental controversies. He founded the Center for Industrial Progress, which is a for-profit think tank, and communications consulting firm focused on energy and environmental issues. Uh, He found that in 2011, and it was meant to offer sort of a positive pro-human alternative to the green movement. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which has been called uh, the most persuasive argument ever made for the use of coal, oil, and natural gas. He was also named the most original thinker of 2014 by the McLaughlin Group for this work. Congratulations and welcome, Alex. Hey, good to be here. So, Alex, I wanted to start a little bit. You know, obviously this book is fantastic. It's, you know, got some great arguments. And fundamentally, whether or not, you know, whether you agree with Alex Epstein or not, what I learned about you through our mastermind that we're both part of Genius Network is at the, you know, at the deepest level, you're more than anything else, a man driven by logic. You know, you're a philosopher. So I got to ask you first, what got you so interested in the topic of fossil fuels in the first place? Well, I've always viewed philosophy as a very practical tool. I mean, from the time I was maybe 15 years old, uh, the the whole origin of philosophy in my life was that there were certain kinds of most notably questions of how human beings should act first politically and then more individually and i didn't really feel like i had many tools to answer those questions and people were just arguing about them all the time uh, in a way that i wasn't comfortable with in that there just seemed to be no means of resolution and so when i got into philosophy it was at first a means of 
making some sense of just the political mess and not not necessarily our institutions so those those are a mess but just the thinking and just the endless debating that never leads yeah. anywhere so from the beginning the goal was i need a more abstract perspective i need certain kinds of things that philosophy provides in order to make sense of of concrete issues and you know, there are a number of things that philosophy provides but maybe the most important is philosophy tells us that whenever we're dealing with any kind of issue of human action we need to we need a standard by which we're judging an action as good and bad which i i call standard of value which i got from the philosopher ayn rand and just that question that one question what is my standard of value how am i measuring good and bad is is just the question that keeps on on giving and once you start asking it about things you realize that people aren't asking it and that when you do ask it and when you identify it that enables you to take a consistency of action toward that standard mm-hmm. and lead to really good results so to put it in the realm of energy if we ask what is the standard by which we judge an energy source as good and bad now First thing is most people never think about that and are not taught to think about it. But then if you look at the the labels we use for energy, we'll talk we'll say, well, we want green energy, we want renewable energy, we want clean energy. But scrutinizing those, those are all really bad things to make our, our standard, our, our goal. They might have some legitimacy, but in terms of our goal, uh, you know, I want the energy that's best for human beings. That's that's my standard. Uh-huh. I would say that advances human flourishing. And let's just take the idea of being green. Being green means to minimize human impact. So if you take that idea of minimizing human impact seriously in life, that really means that we should never build cities. We should have never turned a patch of dirt and trees into New York City because that was having a big impact on, on nature. And you should never have kids or a family because that's having a really big impact on nature. And, and you'd have to conclude that if you look at them at night, North Korea is a much better country than South Korea mm. because there's much less impact on nature. Right. And by having this as a standard, by having being green, minimizing impact as a standard, what happens in practice is we have a prejudice towards sources of energy that are quite unreliable, namely solar and wind, that actually don't meet the needs of most of the billions of people in the world. But we advocate those and we actually oppose things like fossil fuels and nuclear that turn out to be better because we have the wrong standard. Whereas I believe if you have a human standard, then if you look at the positives and negatives of everything, you're going to conclude, wow, fossil fuels for billions of people are really by far the best thing. And nuclear power could be by far the best thing for many people, whereas these unreliable sources are at best much, much more speculative. So when I saw that in energy, that philosophy could do an enormous amount of good in in very practical ways, that's how I got interested in it. Right, right. So I think you kind of answered the next question I had or the sort of setting the stage for it, which was, how do you set up an argument? You know, I I want this to be, um, you know, this discussion in part to sort of reflect your way of thinking rather than it just being sort of a back and forth. And you know, when you think about the topic, you look very much at the arguments on the other side. Is that correct? How how do you approach any given argument? Yeah, I think that there are two big things that you need when you're making an argument. First is you need to be clear on your context. And I can elaborate on that in a minute. Yeah. Uh, the second thing is you need to be clear on the other person's context. Because I think of of persuasion in the legitimate sense as bridging between two contexts and context is basically the sum of everything you know or think you know Mm -hmm. and 
So if I'm trying to move you toward my context on the issue of fossil fuels, I have to know a couple of things. I have to know what we both agree on. So what I know that I think you also know. I have to know what kinds of, uh, you know, what you think you know, but I think you're wrong about. Uh, I have to know, and one really thing, one thing I find important, particularly when communicating with large numbers of people, is I need to know what arguments, what are the major arguments you've been exposed to on the other side? Right. Because if so, in, in the case of fossil fuels, the three big ones would be fossil fuels are bad because, and then one would be uh, causing catastrophic climate change, two would be catastrophic uh, pollution, and three would be catastrophic resource depletion. So if I'm talking about fossil fuels, A, I had to think about those arguments in coming to my conclusion. But let's even say that I've worked it all out and we're, we're at that stage or we've worked it all out or we think we've worked it all out. I need to address those arguments somehow in presentation. Otherwise, it's going to just go completely past the person and be completely implausible. So when I'm when I'm bridging context A and context B, uh, I'm thinking of what do I need to add to your context? What's new do I need to, that I need to add? What do I need to subtract? So what do you think you know that I need, or what have you heard that I need to remove? And then third, what do I need to modify? So what are things that you think that are partially right, but not quite fully right? So one thing in energy might be, you might value cleanliness and energy. So you, you know, all things being equal, you want less harmful waste or potentially harmful waste. And so that's a good thing, but in your thinking, you might prioritize that as number one and just say everything is about being clean, whereas actually, no, that's just one consideration. That's one part of an energy source being best for human life, but we wouldn't say it was bad for people to use fire for energy a million years ago or 100,000 years ago because it wasn't fully clean. Right. Because our standard would be we want the best overall uh, for human beings. So that would be a modification. So you think of it as you have context A, you add, subtract, and modify to get to context B, and that whole process requires a very detailed awareness of where they are and where you want them to be. So let's let's use that uh, systematically, just kind of go through this if we if we could. I mean, obviously you wrote a whole book on it, so we're not going to be exhaustive. But what what can we? Let's say I'm on the um, the side that says that you know fossil fuels are actually not moral; that they are immoral. Um, what can we, what can you and I agree upon first based on your typical, you know, your typical, uh, opposition on this, on this issue? Well, sometimes you don't know exactly what you can agree on, but what I, what I need you to agree on, otherwise I'm not going to write for you or speak to you is I need you to agree that your ultimate goal is advancing human life. Right. Okay. That, that when you think about it, that's your goal. I mentioned before that in energy we have this green standard that dominates, so minimizing impact. We want to somehow minimize impact of our energies. And it, it, when we scrutinize that, it's a very anti-human idea. So one thing that I'm uh, very often and early and, and very early doing in communication is I'm clearly stating my standard and asking if the person agrees with it, which is a little bit different than saying we agree on it in advance, because part of it is that issue is not even visible in most discussions. Yeah, so yeah. what I want to do is I want to make that visible, bring it into conscious awareness, and then I want to get agreement on that. And I have a whole uh, 
I do this in one form or another in, in writing and, and different things, but in, in the place I've explained this the most is in one-on-one conversations. And I have something called the course, How to Have Constructive Conversations About Energy, which people can check out at energychampion.net. And the idea there is that early on in any conversation I have, I want agreement that, we're, hey, we're both after the same goal. Because yeah. if you're both after the same goal, then it's amazing how much falls into line because that that then organizes all the facts. And then you can say, uh, th- then we view the facts in a, you know, in a, in a totally different way. So if, if we're just talking about, hu- you know, human life, let's say that. So I say, well, like, let's look at the different sources of energy. So but but with the goal of human life in mind. And I'll say, well, look, you know, fossil fuels have this superior efficiency that enables that industry to be the only one in the world that can produce energy for literally billions of people. Like it's the only one who's solved that problem. And for me, that's a huge positive because those people need energy as a fundamental. And then somebody says, well, you know, it's not, but but don't we want our energy to be renewable? I think that's that's their counter. But then if our standard is human, then the answer is, well, not really. Uh, we don't really need our cell phones to be renewable. We mm-hmm. just always use the best materials at hand to make our cell phones, and then we innovate, and we always have the best, most progressive materials for cell phones. And so why not do the same for energy? What if we have 500 years' worth of fossil fuel material, and we use those, and then we keep, you know, we innovate, and eventually we find something better, but why should we not use it because it won't be around for 5 billion years. That doesn't make any sense. So that'd just be one example where somebody thinks that they have a counter argument to me, but really it's they're on the wrong standard. Yeah, a lot of stuff yeah. falls into line when you name your standard. And that's that's interesting you say that because, I mean, you you know, you see that in these 24-hour news cycles all the time, right? If there's no goalpost to start out with. I mean, that's where what, what we can agree on and, and what we're going to try to find out whether we agree or not on how to get to that uh, end goal. Well, instead, what ends up happening is the goalpost keeps moving <laughs> to, to, to make the argument make sense, um, you know, regardless of whether or not it fits into that standard. So in terms of this particular issue, again, let me ask you this. What are some of the stronger arguments in your perception of the argument itself from the side of people who are against fossil fuels. What are some of those stronger arguments? Well, can I can I bring up one other frame? So I consider the standard issue, I'd call it a framing issue, and I'm very big on, on sure. framework. So because mm-hmm. uh, framework is your starting structure of a thought process or of an argument, and that it's just like the framework of a, of a car. It's going to have influence on everything else that happens. You know, so the basic framework of the car is going to influence a lot. And so, in an, the two basic elements of a framework, one I mentioned is the standard. Uh, the other, the other one though is the we can call it the the method of thinking or the the really the decision making process. And the decision making process that I'd advocate, and I think most people would agree to, is I'd say well, it's, it's a full context process. So I want to look at the full context of the positives and negatives of all the alternatives. So mm-hmm. I want to know, you know, everything I can about fossil fuels, good and bad. Right. And I want to know everything I can about the alternatives, good and bad. Right. And crucial to full context is precision. I want to know not just good and bad things, but I want to know how big they are. So if I'm thinking about sea level, I want to know, okay, is somebody talking about two feet in 100 years or 20 feet in 30 years? Because one wouldn't be that big a deal, and the other one would be an enormous deal. 
So mm-hmm. magnitude always changes uh, your priorities. And what, what we find in, in discussion, certainly in the 24-hour news cycle, there is no full context even attempted right. uh, on on anything. When people are, uh, it's, it's usually negative context of the other side and positive context of my side with an enormous amount of, of sloppiness. Yeah. And what's interesting is it's not at all common practice to think full context. Everyone will agree to do it if you ask them. Sure. So if I say, hey, Buck, we're, we disagree about this, but will you agree with me that we need to look carefully at both the pros and cons of all sides? We can't just look at the negatives of fossil fuels and the positives of green energy. Yeah. Everyone I've ever asked that to said yes. It's a very powerful framing type of thing. And not only will they agree to it, but they'll they'll follow it, or at least they'll follow it much more rigorously than they would had it never been brought up consciously. So if we have this idea of, okay, here's our standard, here's what we want to achieve, and then we're agreeing that in, in achieving that standard, we're going to look at the full context of all the options, that is super, super powerful in argument, but it's and it's it's super effective when you when you initiate it, but it is not commonly practiced even by most thought leaders in the field. And this is why I brought up the issue of I brought this up in the context of powerful arguments, uh, because if you really demand precision about magnitudes and amount of evidence from people on this issue, you will have your mind blown by how sloppy they are and how little evidence they have for certain things. So one one claim that almost transparently does this, if you have this in mind, is the claim that 97% of climate scientists agree that climate change is real. Mm-hmm. That's just a very, you know, the 97%. And this is thrown around. And, and by thrown around, I'm, I'm referring to you know, President Obama, uh, very smart, you know, very, very smart people, uh, high IQ, whatever, any institution, this is just thrown around as if this is this is a, a logical, rigorous thing. I guess it has a number mm-hmm. in it. But yeah. the number is, of course, a poll. Uh, and the poll is, but notice- Without magnitude, notice what's right? What's that? Without magnitude attached to it as well, yeah, without any other exactly. context. That's, yeah. that's, yeah, you win yeah. the prize, right. right? So it's the 97%, okay, but that's just a poll, which polling is a very dubious thing to have as your starting point anyway, right. but is real. Climate change is real. That has no magnitude to it. And, yeah. and also by calling it climate change, you're not even clear on to what extent you're attributing it to man-made versus non-man-made things. Or if climate so has always if, changed, right? Yeah, for that ex- exactly. Right, right, so, right. right. So what you would want, like a kind of better version, a more precise version would be, this wouldn't be good either, but like 97% of climate scientists agree that humans have an influence on climate. Yeah, that would be at least clearer right. than yeah. climate change is yeah. real. But then if you said that, you'd probably want to know well, how big an influence. Right. Because I, and, and particularly because this this claim, we, we're not just inquisitive about climate influence in a vacuum. We're talking about making life and death energy decisions for billions of people. So it'd be the same as if you had a claim about a certain kind of antibiotic that was saving two billion people's lives, and you said antibiotic side effects are real. Well, is that a justification for shutting down that antibiotic? Maybe not. Uh, you'd want to know a lot before you were willing to take a kind of drastic action. So what you really, you know, the real question is, what are the best sources of energy, given the full context? And a sub subset of that is, what is fossil fuels influence on uh, the livability of our climate? And then a subset of that is, what warming impact, if any, do they have? And a subset of that is, what 
plant growing impact do they have? And a subset of that is also how do how does extra energy from fossil fuels help us protect ourselves more than we would from climate than we would otherwise be able to? It turns out you stop caring about anything except how much energy we have to protect ourselves because that turns out to be the decisive thing. Do we have enough energy and technology to protect ourselves from the naturally dangerous climate is much more important than are we making it one degree mm-hmm. warmer? But you only get there through the proper framing. So you can, what happens with, with bad framing, which is really usually unconscious that people aren't thinking about it, is you can have brilliant people who are acting as imbeciles mm-hmm. because they're not, they're not framing things clearly. And so what will happen is, and they're not aware of it. So even if it's a brilliant climate scientist, they'll sort of damp their hand and say, I'm one of the 97%. And they don't realize, well, this is a complete garbage type of reasoning. You sh- shouldn't be part of it. And it's being used to endorse political conclusions that are in no way justified by it. But but people just think, well, I'm kind of doing the right thing. And everyone knows fossil fuels are bad. So just framework is, if I can impress on anyone, in your own thought process and then in influencing others' thought process, get really clear on that. And that's that's where the action is. Right. So I think the point about the 97% scientists uh, believe that there's uh, your argument, your counter argument to that is that's just, you know, it's sloppy science, right? I mean, is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, it's not even much of an argument, but it's, I, I want to put it back in the right context. Part of these things, when somebody makes a completely bogus argument, there's usually some legitimate underlying question. And so often what I want to do is isolate that question and then explain how it fits in. I don't think of, I don't think of all communication or discussion or even most of it as they say something and then I just obliterate the sentence <laughs> yeah, right, right, and then it right. just disappears. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build a context. And so if there's something, you know, I need to add, subtract and modify. So part of what I need to do is, is, is modify and say, okay, yes, it is legitimate for us to think about what is the influence that adding more CO2 to the atmosphere has, but we need to really try to quantify that precisely and and we need to know how much evidence there is. And then once we have that, we need to know what the evidence and, and magnitude is in terms of any unique benefits on fossil fuels that we'd be missing out on if we restricted them in the name of avoiding our right. influence on climate. It's not like there are that many people in the culture who are undertaking the same project that I am and then announcing radically different uh, magnitudes. Sure, It's more like they're not undertaking it. There's a lot of leverage in, in, with most people when they hear my argument versus the others. I think they find it pretty persuasive because it's the thing that it's trying to do makes a lot of sense versus just piling on a bunch of things. And, and this applies to both sides. Like one side will just pile on, well, look, you know, sunspots are really the thing. And this this guy is really smart. And he said this. And oh, but, and you need fossil fuels in India. It's just a, it's just a pile. Of stuff, and the other side says, "Well, did you see this thing about polar bears? And look at what's happening in the ocean." And nobody is really trying to come up with an, a conclusion that integrates the whole context and leads us to the best course of action. And that's why it's hard to find counter arguments per se, because uh, because they're not even trying to do the same thing. Yeah. So, at the end of the day, is the moral case for fossil fuels ultimately, at least right now? that the good for humanity outweighs the known bad. Well, elaborate on what... What I mean by the known known bad is... The good outweighs the known bad. The the, the, the known bad meaning uh, that the science that we do have is not strong enough to look for another course than just utilizing the fossil fuels freely as we are. 
Well, I don't want to be more precise about sure. a couple of things. So the looking for the, first of all, looking for alternatives is something that we do constantly. Right. There's no, you don't need a, a an existential crisis to look for a cheaper yeah, form yeah, of yeah. energy. Sure, sure. Because that is, you know, that's the, just about the biggest market in the world. Right. So uh, the exploration for alternatives, uh, exploration for alternatives is, is not something that needs to be justified by some sort of uh, climate uh, catastrophe. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, the issue is, do you put any significant restrictions on fossil fuel use? And some of the people are talking about 80%, you know, outlawing 80% of CO2 emissions, which is mm. an enormous, enormous thing to do in a world where 3 billion people have virtually no energy right now. So when they talk about 80% in 30 years, people are talking about really, really dire courses of action. So what the, the conclusion is, is that... You know, our continued and expanding use of fossil fuels is very good uh, for human life. It doesn't mean imperfect, doesn't mean that there's no side effects would rather not happen, but that it's it's an overwhelmingly good thing. So for a prescription drug, it would just be, you know, it would be the most popular one on the market for good reasons, because it's just the benefits are so big uh, and, and, and they're so unique compared yeah. to the different risks and, and, and side effects. Now, in terms of science, it, it is the kind of issue, and this is true of many issues in technology, where you want to continually be up to date on science and where they should be looking at, okay, what have we learned anything more about what CO2, more CO2 in the atmosphere does? But there's a certain premise that I think was partially in your question, and certainly in people's think about this, that that's wrong, which is that more CO2, that we would kind of expect that more CO2 is bad. Whereas we could easily discover that actually the plant growth effects just have all sorts of positive things and that it would be a hardship in that respect to switch away from fossil fuels. So even if something was one cent cheaper per unit of energy, we'd be losing out all these plant growth impacts. Or we could discover that, well, the warming, just like previous civilizations basically all wanted warming. So it turns out that on net warming is better for us. And that's, we've, that's been hidden from us because the media are just looking for negative stories about warming. But if you actually look at, at the, the general experience, it's positive. So keeping up on science is something that will affect the moral evaluation of a lot of different things, but it's, it's not, I wouldn't think of it as, oh, it's precarious and it's going to go down. We're sort of just waiting for it to go down. It, I mean, I'm serious when I say that, that it's the only industry that can produce energy for billions of people. It's very serious. Right. It's a very significant positive in a world of seven and a half billion people. So just it's so fossil fuels would have to have so many bad problems for us to say, oh, let's cut their use overall. Yeah. yeah I mean, ultimately, you're saying energy is good. And right now, fossil fuels are the best source of it. And, you know. I mean, that's right. But in it's, a nutshell. It's, a really, right. it's important, though, that because in different markets, that means different things for mm -hmm. something to be the best. This is a case where you only have one industry at one technology that has, has been able to solve the problem at scale. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and after that is nuclear, which no, no surprise, if you understand the green movement, the green movement is even more rapidly anti-nuclear. But when because when. So fossil, so while energy, we have energy as an abstract concept and can talk about the energy industry and that kind of thing. Functionally, the fossil fuel industry is most of the energy 
industry. And there is no energy industry as we know it without the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is fascinating stuff. If you have one take-home point, uh, one more take, sort of a summary point for the audience uh, about this issue, what what would that be? Well, I just reiterate that just I think the two key elements of framing your thinking and your communication are human flourishing as your standard and full context as your decision making process them. Right. I mean, right. That, that should be worth the price of listening to 30 minutes of this interview. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you this. So the book is The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, obviously New York Times bestseller. Uh, it's great, uh, great read. Whether or not you think you agree with Alex, it's worth uh, reading this book. How else can we learn about you and your work? Easiest thing to do is just go to the website industrialprogress.com, which is my company, the Center for Industrial Progress, and then enter in your email to be on the newsletter because there's there's lots of cool stuff coming up, and the one place I can guarantee that it will all be announced is that newsletter. So industrialprogress.com and enter in your email. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for being a Wealth Formula podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show. Now, again, I'm not here to tell you what to think on these issues, but I do think it's a great way to approach any issue. That is, to actually think. It's a, it's a much, much better way than to just have a knee-jerk sort of response to anything based on emotion. You know, we have serious issues in the world right now that we need to address using rational arguments. I wonder, can you look at some of the things that you believe in yourself, I mean, unrelated to this issue, that you can break down your case the way Alex is doing it. You know, it takes a lot of work to do this, and that's why most of us don't do it. However, at the very least, we should demand that kind of rigor out of our leaders who we elect to make our decisions. Anyway, that's my soapbox for today. And that is it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off.